Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome back to Petro Nerds, the podcast, episode 19. I'm here with Trisha Jean Curtis, the CEO of Petro Nerds. I'm Ethan Bellamy. I'm a principal at BP Capital. We're here to talk about energy. And specifically today, we're going to dive into the second part of our long conversation because Trisha is never short on volume or quantity when it comes to energy policy. So today, we're going to talk about presidential executive orders. There are two that are worth discussion. And the activist takeover of, well, partial takeover of the Exxon board by engine number one. And then we'll also conclude with some discussion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. So awesome with that, topic. let's kick it off. And before I let Trisha start freewheeling here, I should disclose that uh, BP Capital does own a position in we are long Exxon Mobil. And I'll actually go, I, I actually have a, I think we said this in a previous podcast. I'm, I'm long Exxon from, I think I bought it in 19, I'm not 19, I'm sorry. I bought the, I bought it in 2014. But anyway, so we're recapping from we just, I did, we did talk that so much happened in the last couple of weeks. So, and I was in DC last week and so Ethan and I weren't together. So we just had a lot to talk about and it's very, very timely. So in the previous podcast and the, the one that we just recorded, which will be last week, if you're listening to this, we talked about natural gas. We talked about um, OPEC oil prices, Saudi Arabia inflation. So we kind of covered the gauntlet there. And now we're going to get into the really fun stuff, which is all the stuff, which people are calling like black, you know, we, the, Basically, they're saying the oil industry has been decimated last week because on Wednesday, three major things happened. And that was that Exxon had, at the time, Exxon had lost two board seats to this um, activist investor group, Engine Number 1. Now we've confirmed that they've lost actually three board seats. And then um, Shell was uh, a defeat against Shell in a Dutch court, basically said they had to significantly reduce their emissions, which would, if they actually complied with it, they would actually have to reduce output um, by percentage points. I mean, they would actually have to reduce natural gas and crude oil output of their company. I think it's easier for them to just move to Lagos. They're going to, they're <laughs> appealing it, obviously. So that one's kind of interesting. And then Chevron also was dealt a blow, which is interesting because, you know, Chevron has seemed to be doing, performing better, especially from Ben Exxon and Chevron was dealt a blow and that they have to actually, their shareholders said they have to decrease emissions as well. And it's the end user emissions, which is basically scope three, which I think is really tricky and not not actually plausible, but we will we will get into that, and then obviously to go to access. So this um, and this executive order. So there were two executive orders that happened last week, and they fo- follow in actually nicely with this Exxon discussion. But I want to start out with this. Um, more drilling actually just sent me a text of- for those uninitiated. More drilling is the anonymous username of a very smart petroleum engineer, reservoir engineer on on energy finance Twitter, who is worth following. He's very sharp. Yeah, very sharp, has lots of funny memes. Um, And he just sent me an article on this, why shaking up big oil could be Pyrrhic victory. And this is from uh, the magazine Foreign Policy. Essentially, I think even uh, the Wall Street Journal has written, every, every single entity has written about it, but it's actually the New York Times had a piece this weekend on this on activists crashed Exxon's board, but forcing change will be hard. So the reality is that all these articles basically come to the point of saying, 
okay, well, you did this, you're on the board now, but so what? And I think it's, it's, um, it's so what, and like, will you actually have changed? And I think it's really important to tease this out because I don't think it makes sense. I think it's counterintuitive actually to, um, you know, it would make more sense for, for me to go on a board to push for a, a solar company, you know, to be more profitable and to maybe not, you know, be using, you know, forced labor or something. It doesn't make sense for me that a engine number one, and actually there's a thought to this, uh, different people getting on boards, but it doesn't make sense for me that an activist investor who's actually after profits is going after Exxon to get board seats with the grounding that they need to reduce their emission and that, that they need to reduce their emissions. Um, and it's not even, re- it's all muddled together. It's, it's not necessarily reducing their emissions. It's their basically backing, which I have it from several months ago of their report is on the back. The premise is that, and their logic is that oil demand is declining Exxon's late to the party. Exxon has not admitted that they're, you know. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's step back and parse that part of the equation. So big picture, we, we oftentimes make the mistake of getting too granular. So big picture here is that if you go on to engine number one's website right now, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty hard to uh, disagree with, which is mm-hmm. Exxon has underperformed. They needed to make better capital allocation decisions, incentive alignment with better performance. You know, those those are hard to argue with. I mean, I've I've said Exxon is should, needs to earn its dividend to Absolutely. keep paying it, right? So, but the the genesis of this isn't on what you see on their pitch on their right. website today. Right. The genesis of it is, hey, we think. This is engine number one, paraphrase. We think that oil and oil product demand is headed down and Exxon's like acting like it's business as usual and investing accordingly, and that doesn't fly. That change in how this has right. been laid out is is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, and that, that's where it's... Cl- so this is where it gets... We, this really needs to be like teased out because I, I haven't heard a whole lot of people do this justice um, and I'm hoping that we will give this a little bit more justice that, that deserves. So they're, uh, so firstly, they they lost two board seats and people were saying, well, you know, Darren Woods may actually lose his CEO position. I, you know, Ethan and I, I think have been pretty honest. I don't think Exxon has done, has performed super well during, during COVID. I don't think they handled the, I don't think their, their tone and their voice has been very great over the last couple of quarters. They chose to increase debt. You know, they chose basically the, the, you know, increasing debt. Um, and, and they massively reduced their rig count. They were really, really exposed. I mean, they had 55 rigs running in the Permian basin when COVID hit and everything collapsed and they pulled all, they have seven rigs running now and they have over 400 ducks in the Permian basin. So now they're, they're fracking those. So, you know, I have folks asking me and clients asking me, okay, well, what does this mean? This, what does it actually mean on the ground? You know, I think they still have to hit at least Prior to these board seats, I would have said they had to hit their their targets for production, but who knows what these board seats actually mean. But the reality is like, so they have massive debt. So all these reasons, if you you are unhappy with um, Exxon's performance, that makes total sense that you, from an activist investor standpoint, the green ESG piece does not make sense to me from an activist investor standpoint, because, you know, it was a few months ago, and I don't think this report is still on their website. I looked for it because I went through the engine number one and looked at everything, and they they have this big thing on Exxon. So their first report is called Energy Transformations, 
Technology, Policy, Capital, and the Murky Future of Oil and Gas. That's basically, this was from March 3rd. And um, it basically dated- Of last year. Of No, March 3rd of this year. So Really? This is, yep. Okay. This is recent. So I've been following this for a little while. This report, and I've used it because they actually took all the forecasts, I, everybody's forecast for oil demand, and they put it together on one chart, and they basically said this is their premise for, look, everyone is saying oil demand is going to be less, and you, Exxon, are, are not with the times, and therefore you're going to have stranded assets and lose a lot of money, essentially. Um, but they really get into the energy. It's a great paper from a, from a thought exercise standpoint of studying it. Um, and thinking about it. So their demand logic, and this is quoting, I'm, I'm quoting this, basically they say, when concerns about oil consumption were rooted in energy security as they were from the 1970s until recently, demand mattered less than reliable supply. And they, they go on about this, this whole thing. But they say, quote, fear of climate change transforms that mindset. No longer is the central platform adequate supply, but excess demand policy in this new mindset focuses on eliminating demand where possible and switching to alternative technologies such as electric vehicles that serve the needs provided by oil today. So the whole premise is guided in demand is declining and you're going to be late to the party and you're going to miss out on this. And that's that's a little bit tricky because now that they've done this now that they've gotten on the board. And by the way, so they got on the board because BlackRock and Vanguard sort of took a knee um, um, and Streetwise, State Street, or State Street Advisors, I think. Three of those companies basically have pretty big ESG momentum in favors. BlackRock has basically said they're going green and then got criticism for not doing it well enough. And so I think that they wanted to be seen like they were doing something. Same for Vanguard. And I also think to Ethan, what you just said is that Exxon hasn't been performing well. So it kind of makes sense. Why not change this up a little? And the two people that were confirmed were both had, I think, refinery backgrounds. They weren't complete non-oil people that are on this board. And actually- Yeah, we we should point out that they had four candidates, three of which were confirmed. The the fourth that wasn't confirmed is the CEO of Vestas. The first three are- Oil and gas folks. So it's not like they're, you know, G- Greg Goff is is on the Enbridge board and he used to be the CEO of Endeavor. Yeah. So he's not going to go in there and advocate some pie in the sky plan. And I'm 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 not I'm not criticizing the the board members or what they did or the fact that maybe Exxon needed some a board shakeup or anything. I, I'm I'm just the the premise of what Engine Number One is trying to do. And I think the guys we have to be the the guys of the whole thing. So basically. They took a $30 million stake in a company and turned it into this, you know, this transformational thing. Um, and they're backed by, I know it's California pension fund, but other state pension funds as well. So I just think you have to be careful if you're putting your money into that pension fund, you know, if that's your money, if that's my pension fund dollars, I think it's going to get a lot of uh, talk and a lot of publicity. The engine number one did this. I don't necessarily think it's going to deliver them a return because they're, you know, the, the point is they want this company to become more profitable, but it's all under the premise and, and guys of the ESG and green focus. And I'm not certain that you can necessarily, it, at least it will take a very long time. And all these, including the New York Times said the same thing. This, this would take a long time to actually turn around to actually see a profit. So to me, I guess the concept other than publicity of doing all this with engine numbers one premise, they're also apparently raising money now on the back of all this publicity. They're raising money for a purely green fund. So they may have had all our ulterior motives with this. And well, let me let me step back as an asset manager and yeah, just say, please do. Kudos to them. They, this is a they're in the the in every discussion. Yep. They're raising a ton of money. Yep. They were effective in uh, jawboning big fellow investors into executing almost all their plan. 
they knocked it out of the park. So whatever their premise is, they've done something good. Now, whether it makes them money or not on their Exxon position, I don't know about that, but it certainly should help them raise money in the rest Agreed. of their business. And so from a business perspective, they seem to do it. I don't agree with the premise and nor do I agree with those I don't agree with the fundamental premise behind it. Um, and I think it gets messy when if you are an investor and you're putting your money into engine number one, I would want to I would want to understand it better. But Chuck Yates has always he said, I think, on his podcast with David Ramson Wood on Hot Take of the Day, he said that, you know, you should invest in things that you don't actually are not in love with. And it's a, it's good advice. It means that I shouldn't be investing in, you know, I'm passionate and understanding, I guess I really should be investing in things I hate because I'm going to do better. But the point is, is that, you know, like I. There, there's a number of things. If you're doing this because you believe in the movement, that's one thing. If you're doing because you want to make money, that's another thing. But these are pension fund back things. So if we're thinking this is going to continue to happen, there there are repercussions or ramifications for how much money these guys will actually make. And the demand, the, I do, I disagree with the, the, you know, I don't think Darren Woods has done an excellent job in how he's, you know, taken the company through the down through this 2020 and into 2021. And, you know, you can hear it in his sort of tone, um, but obviously I think he survived this. So he's still the CEO. Um, people thought this might be a reckoning for him on that. I don't know how long that is. Um, I would say that given all this volatility, I wouldn't say he's going to be there forever, but you, it would be hard to be an oil executive CEO and, um, and stand up there and, and change your tune. And I think Chevron's getting pressure for this as well of saying they will, you know, I think they're getting pressure to say, Demand is declining and we're not, you know, oil demand is declining and it's not going to be here for a very long time. Um, I don't agree with the IEA forecast, nor do these CEOs agree with it. They would be lying. If these CEOs get up and tell you that oil demand is declining considerably, like it's not just peaking, but then declining dramatically, um, they're they're not telling you the truth of what they actually believe because they don't believe it. And and the CEO of Chevron has been very clear that he doesn't believe that and that he will be providing the crude oil. Well, it is a challenge for the big multinational oil companies CEOs because they are very much ambassadors of nation states and they can't just say the IEA's numbers are bullshit. They have to be more diplomatic about what they think is going to happen and what yeah. they're arguing for. And I, I think it's a challenge. I think Mike Worth has done a fantastic job and we did the Chevron is Awesome yep. podcast. Um, so, I, you know, I that doesn't absolve them of the ongoing huge responsibility and challenge of navigating these waters. But if anybody's doing it right for my money, it's Chevron. And, um, and you know, we'll, we'll see if they can continue. Yeah. And they're, they're not, they're going to keep getting pushed. But for me, it comes back to, are you making money? Exxon would not be in this position if they had right, still had the return on invested capital and the excellent, um, yeah, you know they have doubled the debt. They have walk through every E and P metric, of, full cycle yep, economics, break yep. evens, etc. And when I started out in the business in in energy finance, you know Exxon had the the branding and the reputation as the excellent large cap capital allocator in the business, similar to GE was the best managed company around. The narrative arc of those both of those companies fairly similar. You know, you go from being the eight hundred pound gorilla and an unassailable reputation to not. Yes. Yeah. I mean, falling out of the Dow. I mean, they've lost a lot of COVID hit them really, really hard and they were not well positioned for it. So I don't, I'm, I'm not defending, you know, they're, they are not a, um, they've not executed well. They were super exposed and, um, and they're not a pure, 
you know, you got to realize that these majors just came in pretty hard into shale only recently. So it's not like, you know, we haven't heard the same things from from EOG and Diamondback, you know, this type of stuff, because these are small, com- smaller companies, more insulated without this sort of exposure. And they're also becoming free cash flow positive. Yeah. As a digression, I should also mention, uh, and this wasn't our agenda, so I'm, I'm That's apolog- fine. Oh, I apologize that I'm uh, that I'm ambushing with you, time. but there was an important court ruling in the quote unquote Exxon new lawsuit where the judge basically, you know, just they they won. Exxon won. They, it, there was no under the the I think it's the Martin Law in New York, which is a very stringent uh, shareholder law. Uh, basically, Exxon was not found to be guilty of any securities violations. So that was a nice little win for for Exxon in a long term campaign to prove that they knew about climate change and they did, they lied to investors about it and that just didn't come to fruition. Well, that's going to bring us to our, I, we're, we're, we're going to interweave mm-hmm. and keep coming back, probably coming back. And so forth you want to talk about, about executive orders? I do, but not quite yet. So okay. we're going to interweave this because that actually gets into, I'll just like, you know, spoiler for the listeners coming up, but the, the, the climate change executive order was climate change, financial risk. And you know that, you know, under Janet Yellen, they are having a, basically a climate change, individual or division. So we're, we're in this administration is instituting climate change into the financial metrics of this country, which is, which is very much game changing. And I do think has a, if these measures had been in place um, for stuff like that, for it's going to create precedent. It's going to get things a little murkier and push these companies or push the investing. So let me, let me bring people on board with what we're talking about there. So two executive orders in our last podcast, which for us was 30 minutes ago, but for you will be a, a week ago. Trisha talked about the slew of executive orders, which are 2X from the Biden administration, what they were under prior presidents. So executive order 14030 and 14207, and these are respectively climate-related financial risk, uh, and then secondly, establishment of the Climate Change Support Office. So in brief... 14030 is a government-wide strategy for financing needs to get us to net zero by 2050. Mm-hmm. And then orders of various government agencies, National Economic Council, uh, Office, of Man- Office of Management Budget, Secretary Treasurer, basically to, to permeate climate policy into the government bureaucracy at every level, from lending to operations, et cetera. And then secondly, on 14207, the climate change support office basically is is designed to aid the state department uh perform, quote unquote perform the specific project of supporting bilateral and multilateral engagement to advance the us initiative to address the global climate crisis so it's it's executive orders to push climate change through the public administration of the us in fairness is exactly what they said in the campaign they would do Mm -hmm. right you know uh, i call that a campaign promise fulfilled it is by executive order not congress though yes so and it's all so it's all in the back of the original executive order all supporting the executive 14008 i believe um which was the one that was in the second week in office that was put into place or the first weekend after one full week in office that executive order so all of this is sort of on the back of um on the back of that i will point out 
just for kicks and giggles, you should browse the Federal Register and you can see all the stuff. That, no one's going to um, do that. And you should because we, I, Trisha will read the Federal Register so that you don't have to. That's why you should pay her to be your consultant. Absolutely. That's 100 percent. Nobody's true. nobody's. Um, so but the Federal Register, if you look at this. So it's important to note because I was just I had browsed it to basically reaffirm and see, you know, am I crazy? Am I thinking like. How far are we pushing this? You know, we'll get to this in Dapple in a second. Like, is the Biden administration sort of giving the oil and gas industry any kind of reprieve? And so I was looking at these executive orders and Biden's actually in the course of 2021, he has issued um, 46 executive orders. Um, Donald Trump, in his first year in office in 2017, he issued 55 executive orders. So that's the whole year. So um, Biden is on course for in, in five months to issue. He's basically going to double um, what Trump did, and Trump did a lot. Barack Obama in 2009, in his first full year in office, issued 38 executive orders. And in uh, 2001, uh, George W. Bush I- issued 54 executive orders. You know, and you can remember George Bush, and I say this because this is not dissimilar. The more I've read these executive orders on climate change, the more it sounds to me a lot like what we, you know, what had been done over the course of when we had 9-11 under this, you know, unprecedented um, threat to the to America. And I think that's what climate change is basically being called an existential threat. It always comes back to the same language in the first executive order on climate change being this existential threat and how we're dictating and how it gets into the foreign policy um, is something that comes up in these executive orders that does make me a little bit nervous, especially when it comes to LNG exports and things like that. But so executive climate change related financial risk. This was the May 20th, this executive order. Um, it says the intense quote, the intensifying impacts of climate change present physical risks to assets, publicly traded securities, private investments and companies such as increased extreme weather risk leading to supply chain disruptions. In addition, the global shift away from carbon intensive energy sources and industrial processes presents transition risk to many companies, communities and workers. So that's basically the, the premise of it. And then the section two of the risk strategy says the assistant of the president of economic policy and the director of the National Economic Council um, and the assistant of the president of the assistant president and the national climate advisor in coordination with the secretary of treasury and the director of the office of management and budget, the OMB, shall within 120 days of the date of this order, a comprehensive government wide strategy regarding it's basically measuring measuring the risk and assessment, um, fi- the financing needs to achieving net zero, and it goes on and on, and you you can get through the details. The point is is that this is um this is the administration using an executive order to get into the financial system, and I would and, and let me point out, please, net zero by twenty fifty, which is exactly the IEA twenty fifty yeah. net zero report, which we have already discussed as being described as la la land. Section two is, is literally the policy of this executive order. Well, and to be fair, I mean, I'm sure Biden would say, well, that's the that's the energy side, you know, that's the the oil minister of Saudi Arabia um, would say did say it's la la land, but it's section two. Part B, quote, financing needs associated with achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions for the U.S. economy by no later than 2050, limiting global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and adapting to the acute and chronic impacts of climate change. So the reason it is fair to bring up this IA report again is because it's brought up a lot and people are using these sort of references and it's sort of this pushing this like this like, you know, foot on the throttle is that the. That probability factor, the 50% probability of achieving their 1.5 degree target within all the things that they were going to do to, you know, immediately stop investing in fossil fuels, they have a 50% probability that they will actually achieve that target. So are the 
president of the United States, the, this administration is now taking climate change and permeating it through executive orders, not through Congress, and permeating into the financial system. There will be ramifications for this. Like, I would be concerned if it, I, I don't care if it's climate change. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's even something I thoroughly believe in. I don't really like executive orders um, get messing with financial systems that much because they tend to have repercussions. And you, it also creates unnecessary volatility because if we get a different administration, they exactly. can unwind executive well, orders, et cetera. That's, that's the other thing so. I noted reading the Federal Register was how many of the executive orders of a Trump he had repealed. Um, oh. Lots of things on the economy and things to be, that's, that's his prerogative. You, you can, but the next president, if it's not yeah. some super, you know, again, another Democrat that's also pretty leftist. And as an, as an anti-federalist and an anti-big government conservative, I'd also like to point out that Policy neutral, structurally, every quote unquote crisis, whether it's a real crisis like 9-11 terrorism or something else that may be a crisis in 2100, maybe, the response from the government is to grow the size of the administrative state. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so this is this gets back a little bit to like- Centralized federal power. Yes, and this gets, I when I was reading all this stuff, I was just thinking back to like, Big government, small government. This is something that, you know, you're going to, this is going to draw party lines on, and not even just party lines. It's how people feel about certain, you know, do you like big government? Do you like small government? This is very much big government. You know, Biden is doing a great job in, in using climate change and COVID and, and stimulus and everything. This is big government. I mean, this is huge. We're, we're looking at $6 trillion in spending. There's a reason why people are more concerned this about- This is the, the infrastructure, infrastructure bill proposal where- right. Child care is right. infrastructure. Which is part of why... Not that child care is bad, but... No, yeah. but it's part of why people have us, the U.S., a very more concerned about inflation in the U.S. than any part of the world because we have a, you know, we still have, we have a dovish monetary policy and we have a fiscal side that's that's very um, big government. And and they're they're using this opportunity to spend all this money. And that's what they believe in. I You know, I, I respect those beliefs. I disagree with... Um, I'm... I'm very conservative when it comes to fiscal spending, and I don't like budget deficits. Oh, somebody! I, I disrespect collectivist tyranny. Um, somebody did last night record. on Bloomberg said something which was I it was a great quote, and um, it, somebody was explaining that the amount of money that we are going to have to spend, oh, just for interest, paying off the interest of our our deficit for everything we're spending for all the stimulus. It's so much in the future. We're just we're just spending federal dollars, our taxpayer dollars, on spending off the interest of this because it's so big. So I don't necessarily think it's sustainable. It is interesting that how big these plans are, how big the proposals are, in tandem with all these executive orders. So quickly, it's either they don't think it's going to last, or they're trying to get it through, or they're just banking on on getting like wiped out in, well, in a year and a half. From a political standpoint, this is not my wheelhouse, but I think there's some risk and fear that there is a change in the house in the midterm elections. I'm guessing so because I, I don't, and I'm not like literally, I'm not politically strategizing in this. It just seems from a business, from everything we're seeing, it's if you're focusing in, I'm an expert on energy and I work on oil and gas. So I focus on this particularly. And I'm positive if you're focusing on different things. You may be seeing different things, but when it comes to energy, this is something that um it's not going away. And, and and climate change is very much at the focal point of this administration. So it impacts all this stuff. Um, I want to bring back this to the executive order because it's also impacting federal lending and how the federal government is doing things based upon emissions. And I, you know, Obama had, I remember when he was using our Export-Import Bank, and it was one of the first times we had basically, he did not give a loan to India 
because they wanted to buy, they wanted a loan to buy equipment for like caterpillars and stuff, basically made in the U.S., but it was for mining coal. And so he didn't, he did not approve that loan. It was the first time we'd been, you know, the federal government had really gotten involved in, in, you know, on environmental issues. It was a little, you know, drops in the pool compared to what's happening now. So with this executive order, section five talks about federal lending. So this is underwriting and procurement um, and basically says that, you know, section blah, 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 section B, the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council, in consultation with the Chair Council of Environmental Quality and the heads of agencies, um, um, shall consider amending the Federal Acquisition Regulation, which is FAR, to, one, to require major federal suppliers to publicly disclose greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk and set climate-based reduction targets and ensure, again, I'm quoting this, ensure that the major federal agency procurements minimize the risk of climate change, including requiring the social cost of greenhouse gas emissions to be considered in procurement decisions and where appropriate and feasible, give preference bids to proposals from suppliers with a lower social cost of greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, there's so much stuff in here that's not defined, like uh, the social cost of greenhouse gas emissions. Like this kind of is rampant for corruption, I think, in many ways of like, you can be a green company. Like what is the social cost of green... Exactly. How are you going to define in, in one company over the other? Like, is that going to be they? I, I, it, this just seems very like we're opening the door to, you know, companies with um, you have to be a very ESG centric company to then get on to then work with the federal government. Oh, it, I mean, I can envision things like let's say you want an SBA loan. Yeah, are you carbon negative or? positive you know that's yeah. just one example but that of how makes this me as a you know as a female-run business that makes me nervous that i have a company called petro nerds you know i mean it's just like that that type of stuff of that I, this is this gets like from a business I, standpoint i prefer to think of petro nerds as a high quality run business regardless of gender for the record yes but i'm just saying <laughs> i mean there's a benefit to being female-run sometimes and then you know but i this stuff makes you think that if you are in oil and gas or you're not you know a to quote a um you know have a lower social cost of greenhouse gas emissions as a supplier procurement that's who they're going to favor so i mean the incentive behind this is obviously that they want to push federal government contractors and suppliers to be green friendly and esg compliant i understand the purposes of that but it's going to have trickle implications and the requiring suppliers to disclose greenhouse gas emissions and climate related financial risks to set science based reduction targets you know, we are barely at the point where we're requiring public companies to, we're, I mean, we're barely at the point where we have really good clarity on public companies giving us full disclosure on their greenhouse gas emissions, on their CO2 emissions. So this is asking that all private companies, and I would say this will be a burden to companies that have to, you know, hire people um, to then go figure out what their greenhouse gas emission intensity is and all this stuff to then be compliant with everything. And who knows how right that's going to be, how correct that's going to be. There's got to be people that'll fake that and there'll be corruption and, and all kinds of things. But it's just, it, it's very interesting to me how fast this would proceed. And trust me, the government contracting space is huge. It's bananas right now with all the studies and everything that they're doing. They're hiring people left, right, and center, which is a good thing. I mean, hiring people is great, but the fact that we don't have a set standard for all publicly traded companies to have CO2 emission requirements, and yet for the federal government, you will have to have it, it's going to be extremely murky. Um, and I mean, I remember in the when the stimulus package under Obama, if you talk to folks in North Dakota, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I mean, when they were counting green jobs, 
and they were counting jobs as part of stimulus. If a company, if like a store sold a pair of boots, they counted that as a job. If somebody put in a window, they counted that as a green job, you know? I mean, so I wonder how these standards are going to be laid out. But that's true. Like you can go up to North Dakota and ask, like they put in a window, so it's energy efficiency, so it's technically counted. One, that's not a real long-term job, but that's semantics. So anyways, there, there's a lot more to this than I think people realize. And then it does also mention, it goes back and says, quote, as part of the agency climate action plans required by Section 211 of Executive Order 14008 on January 27th, um, which is tackling climate change crisis at home and abroad and consistent with interim instructions for the climate change action plans issued by the federal officer. Um, all, all this gets into this. It comes back to the, uh, it, they get into flood risk and how they reinstated an order on flood risk. And then they do get in back to doing this all on um, from a foreign policy perspective as well. And so all that sort of folds in really neatly into that first executive order. Okay, well, well, let's go back to maybe one of the, weird inconsistencies and i'd like to recognize that a lot of this stuff like engine number one in the background there's what's happening in the public and then there's the inside baseball so there are some narratives that we're just not privy to or not aware to same thing with for example the conversation between the biden administration and the u.s army corps of engineers which did not step up and say shut it down or pivoting I was trying to catch off guard so I could get to it without Natural, you saying, uh, don't do it. Don't do it. So <laughs> didn't work. So <laughs> where they, they basically refused to take a position. And I, I, what's interesting to me about the U S army Corps of engineers and Dakota access is, you know, they said it was fine. They said, we're going to do the environmental assessment, which uh, the environmental impact statement, which is more onerous than the environmental assessment that they did initially which the court ordered, but a court came out and, and basically said, um, you know, there's no clear and present danger to anybody of the pipeline continuing to operate. So you don't meet the threshold. Um, I should also so I want to say energy transfer statement, which is we are pleased the court correctly recognized that the continue op- continued operation of the Dakota Access Pipeline presents no risk of harm to others and appropriately denied the efforts to shut down this vitally important pipeline. Disclosure. We own energy transfer in our midstream book, not specifically on this issue, but it didn't hurt. That stock has done pretty well year to date. Uh, And then whether framed in terms of likelihood or eminence, plaintiffs have not made a successful showing of irreparable harm based on the threat of an oil spill at Lake Oahe, basically saying the pipeline's operating safely. It doesn't look like there's any problem that's imminent. Um, so that was a big issue and yeah, so no, like, I, had pu- I had put out the thesis and, and, uh, Ethan is pushing me to pivot, which I am going to, we're going to circle back to this Exxon thing. Um, so Paul, Paul Teese, um, who's this adjunct professor at the, at the Stern School of Business, um, at NYU spoke at the Energy Policy Research Foundation and the Global Gas Center's forum, um, webinar this morning. And, you know, he linked these things together, actually DAPL and the Exxon thing. And he was his stance of it, of analyzing this from an investment standpoint was really the same way I sort of look at this really. And I, and I mean this truthfully, the, when I'm looking at these executive orders, it is not so much of, I don't, I don't agree with this, which many of them, I don't agree, but it's really, what is the risk? You know, how do, how do companies, whether you're, you're green or otherwise or oil company, how do you have to perceive this risk? And so his actually point on this was that he didn't, 
he didn't think it was positive from the administration on Dapple. He thought that, you know, by the time or he was open to the concept that, you know, when March rolls around, the Army Corps of Engineers could um, could extend this pipeline. Now, the meaning they're going to have a positive EIS and Dapple was going to keep flowing. No, he was saying that he was He's saying, saying they, they think it couldn't. Yeah, yeah, he was saying that they could they could access now. So I want to it could happen. I want to rewind because yeah. I am. I will be happily to say that I'm wrong in terms of Bozberg basically had his hands up, but he actually wrote this awesome, awesome little um, document that um, is really, really good. If you want to know the history of the Dakota Access Pipeline and everything, Bozberg filed, this was filed on um, 521-21, and it's a 31-page document. And basically, Judge Bozberg is explaining very clearly how this how this went about, and he's kind of like, joking a little bit in it too, um, with this candor. And I am going to read this quote because you need to understand that they lost. So he basically had his hands tied because, um, the army Corps of engineers didn't do anything. So it wasn't the army Corps of engineers camp to basically make a decision. They punted on it. And therefore Bozberg couldn't do anything because the tribes did not give him enough. So the, the, uh, standing rock Sioux tribe and the Cheyenne river Sioux tribe did not give enough evidence to, to explain that the pipeline had to be emptied. Um, so basically they won the initial battle of saying, you know, you didn't, you should have had an environmental impact statement. You didn't have an environmental impact statement. So you're encroaching on federal land. Um, but then after that, then the higher court slapped, um, Bozberg's hands, which he explains. And then he basically had to have enough evidence to say, Hey, there it's doing irreparable harm. You're, you're doing more damage by letting it run than you would if you emptied it. And that's not, they didn't show that he couldn't, he couldn't decide on that. So it, it's kind of interesting how that went down. So I, I, in a way, I do think it's in the army Corps of engineers hands. There's a couple of reasons why they could be, they could be punting on this. And one of them may be, you know, colonial pipeline and the fact that oil prices are going up and this administration does not want to be blamed for um, killing an infrastructure project that's already built taking out of service and jacking up oil prices, which would happen. Yeah. And let, let me just interject here. Um, I've seen some crazy stuff out there from the far right, which I want to disabuse. Number one, Biden is not responsible for accelerating natural gas prices. That That is Absolutely a function right. of the economic yep. recovery and basic supply and demand. And it would have happened regardless of who the president is. Now, Two, three years from now, when the impact of these policies rolls through and we have more restricted supply, you know, that that might be different. But let's also say that Biden might be on a, on a global macro level, you know, better for gasoline prices than the Trump administration would be because of Iran positioning, because Iran supply would come on is coming on is more likely under the Biden administration than it would have been under a Trump administration. So. I want to disabuse people of that. The second crazy thing I've heard is that somehow the shutdown of Colonial was a conspiracy theory and that this savvy pipeline company would never have been in a position to have a simple cyber attack like this work and that it was just some conspiracy to raise gasoline prices or profit in the short term. That's nuts. And and I'll, I'll tell you, these, these companies are not ultra-sophisticated cybersecurity experts. They're just businesses that are operating on technology that's been around 100 years. And I didn't see anything suspicious. And we know a lot of people in the industry and credible people in this business. There, There is no justification for this idea that was some sort of conspiracy on Colonial Pipeline. Now, if there is a conspiracy, it's on the one hand, it's the conspiracy is wide open, which is Keystone XL, 
you know, you've shut this down and guess what? You could have an administration come back in and allow Keystone XL and yep. the next administration. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, regional governments preventing, you know, state governments in the Northeast preventing pipelines in the Northeast, which is where we need new gas supply. That's not happening. We have Keystone XL, which is a big, uh, l- low probability, not a, a Canadian government priority that was shut down. We have Colonial, the downtime of which is was very problematic because people still need gasoline, surprise. And the Biden administration put out a lesser lesser hyped release about more cybersecurity around pipelines. And then finally, the Canadians do have as a primary line five, which takes oil into uh, Michigan. And the governor there is fighting with the Canadian government about line five. So line five is is actually, that's the longest winded thing. One, I let... I let Ethan talk for one. Longest two. winded. Longest Who are winded. you? Yeah, just like look, he's a look. At, he talked for a long time. Nice rant. Oh my um, gosh, Ethan. that was good. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I am interrupt. So line five is a predominantly is a propane and it's a dual pipeline. So it yes. is oil, propane, and NGL. So yes. all those are. The, we'll we'll come back to. I also I I don't like conspiracy theories either. I think right after we'd recorded one of the podcasts, I think Ethan turned on uh, a, a conservative news station and I was, they were, I don't mind here. I like learning all kinds of things, but the way they were talking about colonial pipeline was absolutely incorrect. Um, and they were just missing lots of bits of information. So yeah. And problem- I, apologies to people who watch Fox all the time, but Fox is like the right wing version of CNN. And when they talk about energy, it's just like, Oh, well, it's the problem is energy. And that's why no hopefully some people listen to this podcast that actually want to understand it. So I do apologize for, you know, getting too much into the politics, but it is a piece of, I, you know, it's a piece of this. I don't apologize. It's important. Yeah. It's a piece of reality. So these, all these, uh, you know, administrative stuff. Well, okay. I want to come back to the, um, I want to come back to the actual, what Bozberg said, because I don't think a lot of people truly understand what happened with pipeline. So, by the way, it's it's been running 570,000 barrels per day. They're increasing this. They're already working on the increasing. So they're increasing the pump stations. This this pipeline is getting expanded. So on the face of it right now, it reads very well for North Dakota. It reads North Dakota's private land. Um, it There's sm- smaller companies. I mean, and in North Dakota was doing well in terms of folks wanting the assets, you know, and trying to get in a the past over the past two years but i think now especially if there's a green light on dakota access it's extremely positive for wilson basin production so all of those who are a little bit negative on wilson basin on the bakken on the rock and the longevity i'm here to i'm here to tell you that i think it has more running room left and if you listen to the folks out of north dakota they will tell you the same thing um but all that being said so the pipeline um the actual ruling so (laughs) bosberg bosberg explains really well um, that he says that, uh, so just like just like the Dakota Access Pipeline, quote, which meanders over hill and dale before carrying its um, crude oil underneath Lake Ojai, a large reservoir on the Missouri River between North and South Dakota, the current litigation has wound its way through a myriad of twists and turns. This is literally how he writes this, this like report. Which, it's, it's lovely. Yeah, it, it is quite, it actually was quite lovely. It's entertaining too. So last year in a hard earned victory for the American Indian tribe plaintiffs, whose reservations lie nearby, this court found that defendant U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had violated federal law by failing to produce an environmental impact statement before granting defendant 
intervener Dakota Access LLP an easement to run the pipeline under Lake Ojai. The court subsequently vacated that easement and ordered the pipeline emptied of all oil until the court could complete the federally mandated EIS. Wasting no time, both Dakota Access and the government promptly appealed the DC um, to the DC Circuit. In a partial win for the tribes, the Court of Appeals affirmed two central elements of this court's rulings, specifically that the core had um, the core should have prepared an EIS and that the easement was properly vacated in and the easement was properly vacated in the interim. The circuit thus confirmed that the pipeline was, in legal speak, an unlawful encroachment on federal land. And then he this is really where the answer comes in. It, and this is the one page of 31. Quote, it was there, however, he um it was there, however, that the tribes were in of luck. Prior to the cessation of oil, um, oil flow, this the circuit stayed and eventually reserved the aspect of this court's order shutting down the pipeline, reasoning that it had not made necessary findings for what was essentially injunctive relief. In other words, although the vacateur, and I'm hoping I'm saying that right, the vacateur of the easement rendered the pipeline an encroachment on federal property, vacateur could not itself bring about the stoppage of oil. For that to occur, the Court of Appeals clarified this court needed to conduct an additional, distinct inquiry, a component of which requires the tribes to demonstrate that, among other things, they will likely suffer irreparable harm in the absence of an order um, of an order closing the pipeline. End quote. That basically says everything you need to know. They that so all the and he talks about all the you know sell, all all the media attention this has gotten, but I mean. It's explained very clearly, you know, he made this order, he got his hand slapped, it got it got you know, reviewed, but they had to basically prove that, you know, they would have irreparable harm or they would, have, and the tribes didn't prove that. And he obviously, I think, was kind of saddened by that, but they didn't prove it, you know, because it is such a tiny piece of this. And it's not to say, you know, that I'm not dismissing their, their claims and everything either, but, you know. Now, talk about Pyrrhic victories. So, number one. You have to give the Earth Justice attorneys credit where credit is due because they absolutely kicked ass and they cost energy transfer and industry and the pro-oil interests aligned here, including Phillips 66, which is a, uh, a, a one of the minority interests in the pipeline. Millions and millions and millions of dollars, both in delayed the delayed start as well as attorney fees, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and cost of capital impacts, right? So so that's the first thing. The second thing is they're still not completely out of the woods because there still is uncertainty about whether the EIS will be approved. I put me in the camp of I if I hate it when people won't give you a probability number. So my gut based on just how this has played mm-hmm. out and how the Army Corps has treated so far is that 85, 90% sure the EIS will green light based on the exact same math and history of of what the Army Corps has done before will green light the pipelines. So that's not a hundred percent probability, but it certainly is better than being shut down in the interim. Well, and that's the things that that is really specified in this report is the Corps is the Corps punting on this whole thing. The Army Corps of Engineers did not basically it was in their hands to make a decision on this. Well, I so my my take on this is that they are professionals. They are working in the realm of science and engineering and rules and regulations, and they don't want anybody left or right messing in their business and they are probably doing what is the most prudent that they can which is being as hands-off as possible what they i think would argue if they could all stand up and say is we're engineers it's our job to assess this risk the pipeline is very safe this has been politicized and turned into something about 
Native American rights. A lot of these issues are very legitimate about treaties and who owns what land and what should be done in consultation. But our focus is on science and engineering and environmental risk. We looked at it. It's fine. Right. And, that, and so that's the whole premise of it. They yeah. gave the so the Army Corps of Engineers did the environmental assessment, the EA, and determined that they didn't need to do the environmental impact statement. Now, what got overturned was the NEPA, um, which is the Na- National Economic Preservation. Environmental Policy Act. Environmental yes. Policy Act. Thank you. That basically under that, they needed to do the EIS. So basically, that's where the Army Corps is like, OK, we're doing the EIS. So, you know. Could, in theory, the administration weigh in? Absolutely. I think if they really wanted to, they could probably win. So we will actually see, you know, come March. But right now, it looks as though they're going to do this. And in theory, it looks like it's going to be fine. But hey, last June, in theory, we didn't think, you know, we were going to get a ruling necessarily to empty the pipeline. So, you know, it's not over till it's over. But I'll just say that, you know, he does point out that, you know, he quotes the core additionally maintained without citing any authority um, that it was under no obligation, quote, and he's quoting this, to take any particular action to cure an encroachment within a specified time period, or even, quote, to eventually cure the encroachment all. So, you know, he kind of gets at the core for not having a really good defense, but still defending themselves. And, you know, the one hearing that I was able to actually listen to the whole thing was fascinating because he was like hard on the core and the core was like, the using every legal wrangled way to say something without saying anything at all. You know, they were trying to wiggle out of it. So they're in a, you know, in a tough position, but basically this became Bozberg, the tribes, Bozberg favoring the tribes, making his ruling and the core sort of not doing anything makes it not doing anything. And then, you know, this all favoring Dapple. And in the reality from a, from a, just a technical oil and gas standpoint, it would have, this would have pretty damning impacts. You would have immediate economic and, impacts to emptying this crude oil pipeline. And now you're going to expand it. So, I mean, you know, we could be emptying it when it's, <laughs> when it's expanded. So if this is and the net is we should bring it back to the big picture, which is very good for Bacchany and Peace. Uh, really good for Bacchany and Peace. Mar- marathon. Right. And in the into continental con- resources. In the context of this and all. Which we what, own, by crack- the way. All these private companies. Um, by the way, all these private companies that are, are extremely well, if you're a private company in the Bakken, you should be, I mean, this, it looks great for you. I mean, if you're a private company in, in the Permian looks great, you know, if the sage grouse stuff, which sounds like sage grouse is now a new topic, which we will, we will get into probably new the next old podcast. topic. It's a new old topic, but I think the Biden administration is, is bringing it back to be a potential issue. Um, that could make things messy in the Permian, but in terms of North, that also makes North Dakota, things that go bad in the Permian often make North Dakota a little more favorable and people forget that this rock and is, vice versa yeah, and vice mm-hmm. versa. But people forget that this, you know, it's far from refineries and it has pipeline issues, but this pipeline doesn't get empty. And if it gets expanded, you have a pipeline. A, this could be 700,000 barrels a day crude, you know, that's going from North Dakota all the way to the, the Gulf coast without having any, you know, bottlenecks and getting Brent pricing. That's pretty awesome. You know, that's, that's big for these Bakken producers. And so if you're private in the Bakken, I mean, or if you're a small public company, you, I think this, this stuff that happened with Exxon should make you consider, like, can we go private? What would it take to go private? Because if you're private on private land, you're in a much better situation um, than your peers. Well, absolutely. If you think about the shrinkage of – so what, why, do, why do companies go public? It's increased liquidity and better valuation. That, that is in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but that's, those are the main reasons. If you no longer have big asset managers willing to buy your stocks 
And I don't necessarily think that's the case because I, I ultimately think the move towards free cash flow, both in midstream and upstream, is going to invite a lot of capital in that doesn't care about ESG and just cares about right. making money. But it's going to be, it's bifurcated yeah. then. This yeah, is bifurcated it is capital. bifurcated. But, but let's assume that the big public money goes away. That takes away part of that element. And, you know, you're left sure you want more liquidity, but at some point it starts to become such a huge hassle to meet these metrics and, you know, basically be an ESG diplomat when what you really want to do is focus on producing as much oil as you can at the best margin possible. You know, the, the, the benefits of being public are not quite what they once were when, you know, these things didn't matter or they weren't prevalent. Absolutely. And, you know, though, I, I will, I also want to quote Dan Pickering and Chuck Gates for a cu- couple of weeks ago in the previous podcast is that nothing is certain, right? Like we think about this standpoint now, like if you think this is what the environment's going to be like uh, two years from now, you're probably wrong. I mean, I think that, you know, we're feeling these major changes, you know, these monumental shifts within, you know, and if you just listen to the commercials on Bloomberg, you know, that the, the issue movement and the, how the, the train has left the station and, you know, we can't, get away from it. Yes, that's all happening right now. That's really real. But is it always going to be exactly like this? I don't necessarily think, you know, I, I'm not certain of that because, you know, if this stuff doesn't work out the way all these folks, you know, investors, activists and everybody want it to and ESG emissions, you know, or and uh, CO2 emissions don't actually go down and, and, you know, warming goes up and we're we're demanding more crude oil. I mean, we're at we're going to be at 100 million barrels a day at the end of the year. So for all the we're talking about nothing's changing from a demand standpoint. And, you know, all that's changing on a supply standpoint is is the Saudis keeping their barrels off a little bit and letting oil prices go higher so they can they can market their stuff. So and, and don't sleep on three dollar summer natural gas either yeah. in the US. So what is exactly so technically what is changing other than we're we're all wrapped up in this craziness in you know in Europe and in the US and in the stock market. Like I'm just not certain that, you know the market's going to look exactly like this because the momentum has shifted. I also think that you, that bifurcation you explained really well is that, you know, a publicly traded company, this is why I question the role of this activism of unless you're going to increase the share price performance and the dividend, what does it matter? You know, stand on your head, spin a top, do whatever it takes to do that. But if it doesn't actually increase the share price performance, it doesn't mean much, right? So, in order for those investors to get their money back, you know, or a point that's the impetus of the, the the pension holders, or maybe it's not. Maybe they just care about this, like people, you know, writing GameStop. It's it's something that they believe in, and and that could be the case. You know, that's what they're doing. It's a free country; no one can technically stop them. But there's also there's stuff behind it, like maybe you know, engine number one starting this green fund and getting the publicity, and you know, and writing this whole thing, which kudos to them, they they actually did it. I mean, but the flip side could happen too, which is already happening, and that people are. People are looking at oil and realizing, okay, it's not super sexy. We don't love it, but oh my gosh, is it going to make money for the next couple of years? Like it could make money for the next couple of years. And, you know, like you said, these companies well, are. My, my personal metric is when a former colleague of mine who is a New York liberal institutional broker wants to talk to me about what's the highest beta private equity oil and gas investment he can make, you know. Right, I think I think we're back. And I don't what, need to, what did you tell him? Well, I told him we'd be happy to talk about a separately managed account on a long, short basis with some aggressive options for him. Of course, like you didn't say the Petroners would be consulting on that as well. Sure, I'm sure. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we can we can awesome. add that to the mix. Awesome. So, dare I ask if this is 
If I, you have achieved, if you've purged all your like, oil and gas demons, I feel like now. I have. I hope. I hope our listeners, this has done these topics justice. If it has not, or you have questions, or you want to, uh, you know, tell us to push stuff, and we're happy to. Um, these are topics that are not going away anytime soon. Um, but I will leave our listeners. Trisha with- at patronerds.com. E Bellamy at bpcfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you and get our feedback. Thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate it. I don't know if we said at the beginning, this is still Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. And, uh, we will be back, um, next week or the week after. Yeah. And we, and it, I, I might have to do a podcast episode specifically on the government's forthcoming UFO report. Oh, Oh, we also have to mention before closing, if you're still listening, um, Digital Wildcatters is hosting their energy tech event on June 23rd. It's going to be awesome. It's in Houston. Um, that's in the evening. Reach out to them for tickets. If you do not have a job, they are willing to give you tickets as well. And if you can afford it for free. free. Ticket. So yeah. that's awesome. Going to be an awesome, awesome networking Houston, event. I'm Texas. sure. Houston, Texas. So um, reach out to them for that. And then um, I am going to attend the uh, Liberty Oilfield Services Investor Day on June 17th. I'm super stoked about that. So very, very pumped. So we will. We, we love Chris Wright. Yeah. And we'll definitely be talking frack and all, all that stuff. So um, that is forthcoming. And thank you all so much for listening. Thanks, y'all. Bye.